Well, we're back this week into the Gospel of John. It's been about a month. Uh, we kind of took a break from that with some Christmas messages and uh, other topical uh, messages. And uh, I don't know, I'm, I'm excited to be back in. It's been, uh, uh, the Gospel of John's been good for me. I hope it's been good for you as well. There's uh, uh, been something unique in a lot of ways just for me in, in preaching through the Gospel of John. has been different than teaching through it in a Bible study or, or other other ways. And so... I hope it's been uh, impacting you uh, well as well. But uh, you might remember we spent quite a while in chapter 5, uh, in which we had uh, early on in chapter 5 the, the interactions that Jesus was having with the Jewish leaders, uh, that they were, they were try, wanting to kill him because he had said that God was his own father, therefore making himself equal with God. And then we have a, a lengthy section of teaching that Jesus uh, gave. And he could have easily said, oh, wait, you've misunderstood me. I'm not saying that I'm equal with God. And instead, he went on, and again and again we heard things that said, this could only be true if Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. Therefore, that he is, in fact, God, the Son. And so... As we head into the next chapter, chapter 6, uh, Jesus again has all kinds of, of powerful things for us, both to see and to hear from him. Uh, some things hard to understand and yet full of depth and truth, uh, understanding who he is. Um, and so we're going to look at the first 15 verses of, uh, of John chapter 6 this morning. So if you turn to John chapter 6 and follow along as I read them, that would that'd be good. Okay, so John 6, 1 through 15. It says, After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five loaves, barley loaves and, and two fish. But what are these for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down in number around 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted when they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain 
by himself alone. So it says, after these things. Well, after what things? Well, of course, it points us back to chapter 5, the different things that he taught. Um, but we head into a section here, that this, this incident with the feeding of the 5,000 is, is the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that John, John includes that's also in all of the other four Gospels. Now, this is the one that's included in all, all four other than the resurrection. So, so clearly, uh, there's something uh, critical about this. We need to pay attention to it. Um, but John jumps from what happens in chapter 5 to chapter 6 without mentioning a lot of the things that the other Gospels say because his purposes uh, in, in, doing the, in writing his Gospel. Uh, but between those chapters, the disciples had gone out and preached Throughout Galilee, you can find that in, John, in Mark chapter 6, Herod Antipas had had John the Baptist uh, beheaded, and according uh, to Mark as well, it seems as though Jesus and the disciples had found out about that right before this incident happened. So those are some of the things that are going through their minds, right? Uh, it was nearly the time for the Passover again, and, and, and John mentions that here in this text uh, in verse 4. And if the previous feast that's mentioned back in chapter 5, depends on which feast it is, but it probably was tabernacles. Um, so we probably have you know, five or six months that have passed since we left off at the end of chapter 5, which I guess maybe it's good we had a, a gap in there, right? Uh, John took a, a jump ahead in time. And you remember again that, the, as I mentioned earlier, the, the Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus when he was down in Jerusalem at that time. And so it's probably a very good thing, well, no, probably it is a good thing, that he was up uh, in, near the Sea of Galilee uh, because the Father's timing was perfect, right? And so Jesus, having gotten them pretty riled up with the things that he'd said, right? Now he withdraws so that you know, it'll be about a year before he's crucified. And so he, he has these times where he pulls back away from when things are getting hot. Not because he's afraid. He knows he's going to go to the cross, but because he knows that the Father's timing is exactly what it ought to be. But there's also other things, important things, that he has to do. And this incident uh, with the feeding of the 5,000 is really a turning point. And then the, the teaching that comes after it in his ministry and as he works with his disciples, and he's very purposeful about those things. And so the location of this incident, and I probably should have put up a map for you, but it would have happened up on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. Um, Luke 9.10 indicates that it happened in the area of Bethsaida, and so that's just on the very northern end uh, where the, where the uh, Jordan River flows into the Sea of Galilee. So um, there's a lot of debate about the exact location of where this happened, but uh, probably uh, to the north and maybe a little bit east of the Sea of Galilee. Um, it was spring, we're told. The grass still would have been green at that point. It's time for Passover, so that fits uh, what John tells us about there being much grass in this place still because the hot winds would come in before too long and just dry that all out, and there wouldn't be all that, that grass that was there. Um, and the people were following Jesus 
Um, he had been teaching. He had been doing miraculous signs to demonstrate who he is. And he stopped the miraculous signs they did. And typically, they had to do with people who were sick, right? Or people who were crippled or had or were demon-possessed. There, there was something that somebody was, was struggling with. And you start to think about it. I mean, how many of us, if we heard that Jesus, you know, was, you know, down the road somewhere and he was healing people, would you go? How many of you have something you'd like Jesus to heal? I think probably quite a few of you, right? We'd be there. We'd be willing to just, oh, we heard Jesus was there and head out and go to be where he was. On the other hand, you might also just be curious. Hey, I'd really love to see this teacher, Jesus, do some healing. I'd love to see him, you know, cure, you know, someone who's been sick all their lives or is, is crippled and see, see, the, see him make them walk, right? It's, and that's, that's what had happened. People by literally the thousands were following him into this more remote area, and apparently they followed him on fairly short notice. They didn't come prepared. And Jesus is doing, what he, really what he's doing here is he's setting his disciples up in a good way. We usually think of somebody being set up. It's like, well, that's not so good. But Jesus was teaching. He was discipling. He was helping them to grasp and understand the reality of who they were, but more importantly, the reality of who he is and what God is like. And so he leads them right into this situation where there's all these people. They're out away from villages and the places where there's food and so on. And they're going to have to come face to face with some truths about themselves, some truths about Jesus, and some truths about God that ought to shift their perception and make it more accurate, ought to pull them closer to Jesus. And that's what, what Jesus' goal is for the disciples here. And so in verses 5 and 6, I really have, have the situation of them becoming aware of the problem. In, in John's gospel, this is therefore Jesus lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? And he was saying this to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. So, you know, my, my claim that Jesus was setting them up in a good way, John tells us his motivation, right? He addresses his question directly to Philip because he wants Philip in particular to learn something. But he's, he's saying, okay, let me draw you up. It's interesting if you kind of look at the diff different gospel accounts. Uh, some of them talk about the disciples becoming aware. There's all these people and, and they talk to Jesus. They say, send these people away so they can go into the villages and buy food so they don't faint along the way. Another one says, Jesus looked at the people and he felt compassion for them. For they appeared to him as like sheep without a shepherd. And so he began teaching them. And the other gospels you have this, this more conversation back and forth you know, where Jesus turns around and say, they, they say, well, send these people away so they can get food. And Jesus says, you feed them. In each of the Gospels, there's parts of the conversation and the interaction that went on that, that each Gospel writer takes and uses for the point that he's trying to make. And John focuses in on Jesus' conversation with Philip. 
And, and maybe it's because, you know, Philip with a, a more Greek name, maybe the, his, the, the people who are going to read the Gospel of John, he's probably writing it, if you remember back from the beginning in, in Ephesus, maybe, maybe somebody with a name like Philip, they're going to be able to identify with. The larger Gentile world say, well, yeah, I, I might think a little bit like Philip. Because look at how Jesus makes, just kind of focuses in on Philip. And puts the question right to him. Where are we to buy bread for these people? It's a leading question, isn't it? It assumes that the solution to the problem is financial and physical, doesn't it? Jesus doesn't say, oh, what are we going to do? Knowing Philip, and I think Philip probably must have been one of those numbers kind of guys. Kind of surprised he didn't ask Matthew being a tax collector. But Philip's the one that gets the question. Uh, he's from Bethsaida. So it's his home territory. And maybe that's another reason that he points it directly at Philip. But again, he goes right to Jesus' motives, John does in his account here. Because he says he, he wanted to test him. He wanted to prove him. There's another way you could, could translate that. He wanted to draw out what was in Philip's heart. So that, I think, more than anything, Philip could see it, and the other disciples around him could see, well, it's in my heart. Where do I look when there's a need, right? Maybe that's for us, too, right? Where do you look when you suddenly find a need? What's your first thought? Well, let's get out the wallet, right? What's in here? Where am I? What do I need in order to solve this problem? Where do I look first? So Jesus wants to, to demonstrate what Philip's thinking, how he processes problems. Does trust in him, in Jesus, come first? Or is it first, what are my financial resources? Now, in, in, in the next verses, then, Philip answers back, right? Verses 7 through 9. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. And so, you know, if he'd have had a calculator, he probably would have had it out. Maybe he just could do all that kind of, kind of calculating in his head. But a denarius is a, a common coin in that day. It was equal to basically one day's pay for work for a common laborer. And so assuming a six-day work week and taking the Sabbath off, if you're a good Jew, right? This would amount to about eight months for an average worker, 200 denarii. So we're going to give everybody just a taste of bread. It would take someone eight months to earn that kind of money. It's a huge amount. And it still would only give people a taste, right? So you're probably going to have to double it, maybe triple it if you're going to give them a real meal. In fact, you notice Philip doesn't even answer Jesus' question. You know, Jesus says, where are we going to buy the bread? Philip's like, where are we going to get the money? I mean, he, he probably could go through his mind. He says, okay, well, in Bethsaida, maybe they have a bakery there. You know, Capernaum, if somebody was gonna, could, could go that far and get the food back in time. He says, but why bother? We need a fortune to feed this crowd. 
he really just brings Philip to the point of saying, this is impossible, Lord. We can't do this. The money's just not there. You better just send them off so they can buy it for themselves, so they can do what they need. We have Andrew, on the other hand, uh, as we continue on. Uh, verse, verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? So, so Andrew comes with a report. Here's, here's all the food we could find when we surveyed the people. We went looking around through the group. One little boy with a pathetic little lunch, really. I mean, for a little boy, it might just be fine. But we've got thousands, thousands of people here. Uh, Mark 6.38 actually records that Jesus sent the disciples out to look. And so Andrew might have been the one who kind of gathered everybody. What did you find? What did you find? Who's got food? And he comes back with this, you know, this, this report. And, and you start, stop and think about five loaves. Well, even, okay, let's say that you're, you're talking about you know, great big massive loaves. Still going to feed 5,000? No. If they're great big ma massive salmon, going to feed 5,000 with those? Nope. And these weren't even that. Barley loaves, you know, barley is the poor man's grain. And so, you know, the rich people didn't eat barley loaves. The poor people did. It's not the, the greatest. I mean, how often have you had barley bread? Probably not very often. It's not the best suited for making bread. And these were not large loaves, but really probably more like rolls or, you know, maybe biscuit-sized type things. Just a handful, and this is, and the, the word here is that's used is talks about a little boy. This is this is not a teenager's lunch. This is a lunch for a little boy. The fish weren't salmon or some other large. They're probably more like sardine size. Uh, this what what he had really was more like a snack for an adult, for one person. Okay. Problem thing is, is even if it was those larger sizes, wouldn't have mattered. It was still. Impossible to feed all these people with this one little lunch. And then there's the crowd. You know, if you look at verse 10, uh, it tells us that the, in number there were about 5,000. Uh, you start comparing notes with the Gospels, that's 5,000 men. Matthew 14, 21 tells us that there were women and children as well. And so... We, don't, we can't really get a, a, an accurate no, total number of people, but if you start making a few basic assumptions, your, your estimate of how many people were there to eat run anywhere from 10,000 to 20,000 people. This is a big group of people who had, who had come out from all around to follow Jesus and to be where he was and to see these miracles and hopefully maybe have a miracle for them. And so... Andrew's assessment is accurate when he says, what are these for so many people? And I'm pretty sure that lunch wouldn't do for you guys. There's not all that many of us here really by comparison, are they? But those who knew the scriptures maybe started cluing in. Started saying, huh, this sounds a little bit familiar. We've got a little bit of food and a whole lot of people. God was using these circumstances, I think, to at least bring some around, and maybe others as they reflected on it, then down through the centuries, or even just down through 
the next years that followed to say, maybe this is more about God and his power. Maybe this is more about God's care for people and his ability to care for people, even when it's impossible for us. One incident might, might come, what might have come to mind, we can find in, in 2 Kings chapter 4. If you turn back there in your, in your Bibles with me, 2 Kings chapter 4, uh, verses 42 to 44, here in the life of, in the ministry of Elisha. 2 Kings 4, 42 through 44. And it says, and it's interesting, right before this, he's dealt with, uh, you know, some, they've, they've thrown some, some poisonous gourds into their stew, and Elisha is able to throw some stuff into the stew and make it good after a bunch of people got sick. Then verse 42, it says, Now a man came from Baal, Shalisha, and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. Twenty loaves of what? Barley. And fresh ears of grain in his sack. And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. His attendant said, what? Will I set this before a hundred men? And he said, give them to the people that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left over. So he set it before them and they ate and had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Oh, some interesting parallels here between Elisha and Jesus, aren't there? When God provides, what he provides will be sufficient for what's needed. God is able, even with a little, to care for many. So, in Elisha, you know, he had four times as much bread as Jesus had on hand for only a hundred people. So what was Jesus going to do? And yet there's another example. If you, as long as you're in your Old Testament there, turn, turn back to, to Numbers chapter 11. And remember, we were told by John in this passage that it was nearly time for the Passover again, right? So where, where does that send people's minds? They're going to be thinking of Moses, right? And how God sent the angel of death to Egypt and the firstborn throughout Egypt and how they came out with their with Moses and he led them into the wilderness. And they had all kinds of interesting things happen there, right? Well, Numbers 11 is one of those places. And we had people who had been used to uh, the things grown along the Nile River, even though they were slaves, they had, they had food, right? Uh, things in abundance, things that they missed now that they're out wandering in the wilderness with Moses. And they start to complain, right? Before this, this point, they complained about not having bread to eat. What did God do? Manna. Bread from heaven. Pre prepared for them every day. Right? Well, except for the Sabbath, right? When God gives them double the amount they need, and they're good for the Sabbath, too, if they gather it and don't have to work on the Sabbath. I mean, when bread comes out of heaven and it knows what day it is, this is not, not a coincidence. This is not a natural phenomenon, right? And they would have remembered that. God gave the people bread from heaven. But I especially want us to look at verses 21 through 23 because it reflects Moses processing this. How did Moses deal with, I don't have enough to take care for these people uh, because 
Then they start complaining because they don't have meat. <clears throat> God says, I'll feed them meat. God started to understand that, the, that their hearts, I mean, not God, God always knew, but he's starting to help Moses understand the hearts of these people. Moses is getting frustrated with the people, right? Here they are. We've let them. They get Every day God feeds them. And now they want meat. It's really a rebellion against God and his care. It's a complaining about how, how good is God. He doesn't give us meat like we had back in Egypt. And right before this, God says, I'll give them meat. They'll have enough to eat not for one day or two days or five days. or twenty. I'm, I'll, just, I'll, I'll give them so much meat that it's going to come out their ears, so to speak. Verse 21, but Moses said, the people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. And that's probably just the men. You have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat for a whole month. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? Then the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true or not. There's the point. Is the Lord's power limited? Can God provide meat for this group of over a million people? Yeah. And if you know how the rest of that unfolds, God takes his wind again and sweeps in quail and quail. And they have so many quail that they're just stuffed full. And they act, react greedily, and God brings judgment. There's a plague, right? And so maybe the people watching what, what's going on here with, with Jesus and feeding these people, hopefully some of them are like, boy, maybe we better be careful here. You know, God wants us to have a focus on him, not on the food, not on ourselves. Right? And so looking back at, at that example with Moses, is God able when we can't accomplish? When things are impossible for us? Absolutely. As a matter of fact, really, that's where God wants his disciples to be, doesn't he? He wants them to stop and understand, you can't fix this problem. With man, this is impossible. I was reading a commentary that uh, uh, the singer-songwriter Michael Card wrote. Um, on the Gospel of John, and he said this. He said, my mentor, William Lane, used to say that the followers of Jesus should always work at the level of their own inadequacy. We shouldn't be satisfied simply doing the things that we are good at. We should strive to be right on the edge so that if the Lord doesn't show up to help us, we will fail miserably. This is the kind of place the disciples are in now. See, because God doesn't call us to do what we're capable of. He calls us to realize we can't do it. With us, it's impossible. But is anything impossible for the Lord? No. Is God's power too little to do what he wants to accomplish? Now, that's the key there, right? What does he want to accomplish and what means does he want to accomplish it with? So they looked to the money. Money's not enough money for that. They looked to the food supply. No, not even close. 
15, 20,000 people. No, we're not going to feed them with this little bit. But Jesus brings them to that understanding before he then chooses to act. And verses 10 through 13, if we go back to John chapter 6, Jesus now takes action, and the disciples really have to start acting by faith. Because Jesus doesn't explain to them what he's about to do. But he does demonstrate that he is the one who ultimately provides. But he puts the disciples to work, right? Um, let me just reread verses uh, 10 through 13 here of, of John 6. It says, Jesus said, have the people sit down. So notice, he uses the disciples. He puts them to work. But stop and think about what it was that he asks them to do. There was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. Now, stop and think about what it would take to get thousands of people organized and seated, right? The other Gospels tell us that they had them sit down in, in groups of 50. Well, actually, uh, Mark, Mark says in groups of hundreds and fifties. And you're like, oh, is there a discrepancy here? Word not right? No, I think it's people. I mean, you try to get thousands of people to do what you tell them. <laughs> Can't do that with 10 people most of the time, can you? I don't know. Might be that, might be something else. But numbers-wise, maybe it'll help to think of the Bobcat football stadium. And there's a pretty good turnout. Some of you guys have been there. Some of you have seen it on TV, right? That's the number of people we're talking about. Now you tell them to get down on the field in groups of 50. 12 of you. Maybe there were some other disciples involved, too, you know, other followers of Jesus involved. Got to, you know, he, he puts them to work, though. You tell the people to sit down, and the word there is tell them to recline as though they're going to eat, because that's the way they would eat, is reclining. On, you know, remember, you've probably heard of that explained at the Lord's Supper, right? That they weren't sitting around a table, but they were reclining. There was lots of grass. That was important if you're going to sit a bunch of people down to eat. But stop and think about that's a job in and of itself. Jesus puts his disciples to work so that they are engaged in what it is he is about to do. There's no food in sight. I mean, we've talked about how much food would be necessary, right? It would take many, many wagons full of bread and fish to feed all these people in this place, wouldn't it? Can you imagine the disciples, the other, all the people who are going to be fed looking around? So where's the caravan? Where's this food that he's going to feed all of us? How's it going to get here? But without explaining what he's about to do, he says, okay, get everybody up to the table, so to speak. Okay. Which gives us a whole other picture. Remember Jesus, according to the other Gospels, it was Mark, yeah, Mark 6, 34. As a matter of fact, if you just take a quick look there, I think it's helpful to, to read the exact words that Mark records. Here at the beginning of the incident, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So the good shepherd is now going to literally feed the sheep, right? He's going to be, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? He makes me lay, lie down in green pastures. He's going to literally do that with them 
He leads me beside the still waters. Jesus, though first, according to Mark, fed them what they really needed, right? He began to teach them many things. He fed them with truth. And then he gave the picture and fed them with literal food. The physical feeding is a reflection of his spiritual care. And then John tells us he gave thanks. He simply thanked his father as the provider, as always. He thanked him for food that didn't exist yet. It probably was nothing dramatic. Very possibly it was just a traditional Jewish prayer thanking the creator for the bounty that he's provided so that they could eat. He didn't jump up and down, wild incantations or anything showy. He simply gave thanks to his father for fish that they would eat that had never swam in any stream or ocean, for bread that had never been grain, right? Because he was going to literally create this food out of a little lunch that had been given. And it just simply says he distributed it to them. Uh, Matthew 14, 19, if you take a quick look there to get a uh, comparison. <clears throat> Gives us more details. Ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate until they were satisfied. And so again, Jesus doesn't just, you know, he could have miraculously just caused food to be in their stomachs, right? And then they'd be good to go home. He could have miraculously spoken and food would have just appeared in front of them in each of those groups, right? Oh, food. But he chooses to engage the disciples in the process so that they are actually entering into what was going on there. And they are the ones who come to Jesus, and he gives them a basket full. What that looked like, use your imaginations, I don't know. He's breaking bread, keeps breaking bread, keeps breaking bread. Here's some fish, here's some fish. They go out, they, 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 here's one of these, do the math, we got hundreds of groups sitting. Took a basket to this group. Come back, here's my basket, it's still full. Still coming. Back and forth, back and forth. How can this be? The people are watching. Where's that all coming from? There's no carts. There's no wagons. There's no mounds of loaves. It keeps coming. They're a part. They're seeing it. They're feeling it. They're understanding what's going on. Their effort is put out going along with what Jesus is doing. So when Jesus does something in our midst, does that mean, you know, he didn't tell the disciples, just sit over here and let me show you what I'm going to do. No, he engaged them. You serve the people. You be a part of the impossible. I'll provide the bread. So that's really the way he does most things, isn't it? Sometimes he just out of the blue does things, right? Heals someone without anybody ever praying without anybody ever giving care to the person who's sick. But most of the time, doesn't he engage us? Say, pray for the sick. Give them food. Help them. 
most of the things he calls on, we gain because we join into the process. But he is ultimately the one who provides. And that's the way it happens here. The disciples are involved. God calls us as well to be involved. And notice at the end of verse 11 that they received of the bread and the fish as much as they wanted. In verse 12, the first part says, when they were filled. So they didn't all just get a bit like Philip was afraid would happen if they spent 200 denarii. But they kept eating until they stopped. They kept eating until they were full, till they were satisfied. It wasn't just a snack so they could get to where they were going and didn't faint along the way. Jesus is generous and a good host and our ultimate provider. I mean, we take it, stop and think about this too. We take it for granted that when we eat a meal in America, we can eat until we're full. That's not true in many places in the world and certainly not in most times in history. People ate to survive, not to get full, not to get all that they wanted. It's a pretty unique thing. And so it's no wonder they came looking for Jesus later, right? You provide, but you provide good, right? You provide, we actually ate as much as we wanted. And both kinds of feedings that Jesus gave them satisfy, right? He, he taught them many things. It went right to the heart of what they needed. But when he fed them, it was, a, it was a mirror of his teaching them. They were satisfied. Now they, yeah, both you need more of later, right? But that's a good thing. It's part of the process. And then he has them actually gather up leftovers. Oh, sounds like Elisha's situation, right? Yeah, they'll all eat. They'll be filled and there will be leftovers. And again, he engages the disciples. You go back out there and see what's left. Gather it up. So they're going around. Oh, wait, there's, there's, you guys don't want, you can't eat all this? No. Which tells us a couple of different things. One thing, we need to be good stewards no matter how our bounty comes about, right? It's easy for us who have so much to say, oh, just, just throw it away. Jesus could have left it there, out there on the, on the, the hillside or on the, in the meadow. Let the birds eat it. I says, no, I don't want any of it to be lost. But then you look at what, what, is left. How much? Twelve baskets. Hmm. Any coincidence that there was twelve baskets? I don't think so. I think he wanted to speak to the disciples that even though they had acted as servants, they were still cared for. They were provided for. They were fed by the master. They were fed abundantly. And they had all that they needed and more. Jesus provides well for those who will be his servants as well. Now let's look at the, at the reaction, verses 14 and 15. It says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. And we've come across this phrase, the prophet, before. Remember, they, uh, the Jewish leaders sent to John the Baptist, are you the prophet? Remember back in, in Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, let's just look at that again. We've, more than once we've, we've done this because it's a very important prophecy given to Moses, which uh, it's Passover time, minds will be on Moses, right? What was Moses like? This guy reminds us a lot about some of the things that happened with Moses. But Deuteronomy 18, 18 and 19, um, the Lord told him, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, 
like you. I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. I shall, it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so they were looking for this one promise to be like Moses. Oh, well, what did Moses do? Oh, Moses was connected with the bringing the manna, right? Oh, Moses was connected with, well, they had all the quail they could eat. It was a, should have been a bit of a warning there when they thought about that. But maybe he's the one that was like Moses. And what do they want to do according to verse 15 back in John? So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew him to the mountain by himself alone. They're like, this is a good deal. He can feed a massive group of people. He can feed them until they're full. And he didn't bring wagons full of food. Food security. And food for an army are two key things that you need for a strong kingdom, right? If you keep your people well-fed, you feed an army, and you can feed an army in any place. Here's an ideal person to be king, especially if he's the one God promised. Right? Controlling the food supply, by the way, was another, another way that, a, that a, a ruling army might keep people under control, right? You control the food source, you control the people. Well, if we've got Jesus, they can't control our food source, can they? If he can just do this anytime we want, well, that takes away one of the Romans' tools, right? And so if this is the promised prophet who, like Moses, and they would have was like Moses, and they would have to do all the things that he said, well, let's grab him. Let's make him be king. If Jesus can do this, who knows what else he can do if he can feed us like this. And maybe this is a time to get rid of the Romans' oppressive rule. We're so tired of it and we're so eager to see them go so we can be our own nation again. We can be free people. But interesting, Deuteronomy told them that they should submit themselves under this one who should come, right? What does Jesus understand they're about to do? They're going to grab him and force him to be king. Kind of a strange way of thinking, but we do that too, don't we? Yeah, you're so powerful, I want to make you do what I want. Well, who's king then? Who's God? Who's really in control? If that was their, their, their desire, maybe they should have all come down and come and bowed down and said, whatever you want, Lord, we see who you are and what you can do. Now what should we do? But instead, they had their own agenda their own things they wanted to do. None of us treat God like that, I'm sure. But Jesus pulled away from that, right? He didn't come to be you know, a leader of an army to, to disperse the Romans. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to give his life a ransom for men. He came to pay the price for our sins. But what did the disciples get out of this? We actually aren't told their reaction here. Uh, what, what, though, did Jesus expect them to get out of this incident? You remember back in chapter, chapter 5, you know, verse 18, Jesus was accused of making himself equal with God. The rest of that chapter, remember, he pointed out, yes, I am 
equal with God. Yes, I am the one to whom judgment is given. I am the one who does everything that the Father wants. I have the ability to do that. It just confirms that assessment that he's making himself equal with God. But now there's another miracle that indicates this man is a creator. He created massive amounts of food that wasn't there before so these people could eat. What were they supposed to get out of that? Let's go back to Mark chapter 6 again to his account. Because Mark makes an application and he probably, his source for his gospel, because of his close association with Peter, we believe was Peter. So Mark 6.52, we have the situation that's going to follow this where Jesus walks on the water. And they don't get it, right? The disciples are puzzled. Uh, Verse 51 just kind of wraps that up. He got into the boat with them and the wind stopped. And they were utterly astonished. Why were they so astonished? For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. At the time, they didn't understand what it meant. They were surprised when Jesus could walk on water, when Jesus could calm the sea, because they missed the point. Well, what's the point then? Well, he is the Lord of creation. He is himself God. And they should serve him as God. In Matthew chapter 16, we're not going to read that, but later on he'll say, beware of the leaven of the the Pharisees and the scribes. And they were like, oh no, it's because we forgot to bring bread. Jesus will rebuke them at the end of that passage and say, how many loaves did we start with? And we fed all, I fed all those people. Don't you understand? I'm not interested in bread here. He says, and then they understood that he meant beware of the teaching or the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, Jesus' primary concern wasn't the physical things. He was the creator. If they were without bread and got to the other side of the lake without bread, could he not create food for them if they truly needed it? He wanted them to understand who he truly is. And as John looks back, reflects on that, he's understanding it now very well. He served Jesus for many decades by the time he writes this gospel, right? Because, oh, like Peter understood, our hearts were hard, weren't they? We weren't willing to really get what Jesus wanted us to get. But in time, the Holy Spirit helped them understand that, helped them to grasp that. What does Jesus want us to get out of this? Well, I think he wants the same thing that that the disciples were supposed to get. Who is this man? He is God. Why did John write this gospel? Let's go back to the, back to the beginning by going to the end. Okay, we talked, we've talked about John 20, 30, and 31. We've got to keep remembering it. And John explains, why did I write all this? Why did I, I tell you these, about these miraculous things? He says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Messiah, the Son of God, and therefore God, and that believing 
you may have life in his name. He says, get it. Nobody can create that much fruit without being God. Nobody can accomplish those things he did without, in fact, being the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who is called to come. Believe and trust yourself to him, and in doing that, have life in his name. Now, don't, don't think that this is just, okay, now you need to get saved so you can go to heaven. That's absolutely true. If you haven't believed in Jesus to forgive your sins and to give you the gift of eternal life, you need to do that right now. Don't put it off. You might not have the chance tomorrow. You may not live past today. You need to do that. But as I look, most of you are believers. Maybe almost all of you have, have done that. You've entrusted yourself to Jesus. But are you having life in his name? Are you really engaging in the things that Jesus is doing? Or are you just saying, well, Lord, that's impossible. I don't know what we're going to do about that. Or are we waiting to see, okay, Lord, I don't know what you're going to do, but what would you like to have me do to engage in what you're about to, to take place? Because having life in his name isn't just about, you know, just live however you want, and then when you die, you've got a ticket to heaven. No, it's having life. Having life, experiencing life in his name with him. That's what Jesus wanted his disciples to get out of it. That's what he wants us to get out of this. That he didn't just come to make sure you get into heaven in the end. He came to give you real life. Life that is full, that satisfies, just like he provided enough food that they could be satisfied. right? But that you could walk with him, that you could engage with him, that you could be his hands and feet in accomplishing the things that he is actually going to do through you. Don't settle for a life where you just sit back and say, well, so many things are just impossible, Lord. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Let's pray. Father, each one of us have situations that are going on in our life that we need to be aware of the fact that we're weak and incapable. What you want to do is impossible for us in our own strength. And help us to step back and say, Lord, I trust you. I'm going to do what I know I need to do to be faithful. Or I don't know what to do, Lord. Show me what to do even if it doesn't make sense. Help me to be uh, the servant who helps people sit down and passes out the food, so to speak. Uh, it's, it's a little frightening for us, Lord. And so I pray that you give us courage to, to do things that maybe seem strange unusual, but also keep us listening, keep us in your word so that we understand what it is you want to accomplish in our lives. Help us to be talking together about what you might be doing here in our midst and in our communities and wherever it is you may direct for your glory. Thank you that you've included us. Thank you that you love us and actually want a, a relationship with us, not just an, uh, an exchange but you actually want to know us, and for us to know you, for us to have, have direct uh, connection to you through your glory. Father, thank you again. In Jesus' name.